Welcome to this edition of In the Author's Voice. I'm Jeff Williams. Longtime educator and author Frances Schoonmaker is hard at work on the sequel to her award-winning The Last Crystal trilogy. If you haven't heard of the series, you might want to ask a grade school student or a teacher. I talked with Schoonmaker recently about her books and her special brand of historical fiction with a science fantasy twist. Uh, let me just summarize it in a nutshell. Sure. Um, the Last Crystal trilogy um, has the three books are independent in one way, but they're held together by uh, a theme. And here's the deal. <laughs> at, the, at the dawn of time, seven crystals are set aside for repair of the world at times of great need. And they're placed in the hands of immortal twins who are charged with their keeping and their use. But one of them betrays the trust, steals the crystals, and uses them for her own evil purposes. <laughs> and the other one is, as the, um, the trilogy begins, the other twin um, realizes they're down to one last crystal, and he wants it for its intended use. So in the first book, uh, Grace Willis, the protagonist, and her family are headed west on the Santa Fe Trail. And this is where the historical part elements mm -hmm. of the book come in. Um, Grace faces um, the perils that pioneers faced during those times. And, and the biggest threat, by the way, was not from Native American people. It was from, you know, shooting yourself with a weapon or um, accidentally or um, cholera or smallpox. Those were are terrible um, uh, killers uh, on the trails west. In fact, if it really, our national graveyard probably ought to be those trails because so many people died. So Grace faces this. She's kidnapped from the trail, and she has to decide if she's going to pull up her socks and take action to do something or if she's going to cave into despair. And when she takes action, she becomes uh, involved in the quest for the last crystal. So in the second book, um, The Red Abalone Shell, Oh, by the way, the first one is called The Black Alabaster Box. Uh, the second book, The Red Abalone Shell, finds um, James, the protagonist, sitting on the steps of a little church in western Oklahoma without any idea where he is, who he is, how he got there. And his only clues are um, an old map, um, a red abalone shell, and a dog. He's adopted by a German pacifist family, uh, right on the cusp of the U.S. entering World War One, And so he has to decide his own stance as he tries to figure out who he is. And in that process, he is drawn into the quest for the crystal. And in the third book, and, you know, I slipped this in slyly, the one that won the Agatha Award mm -hmm. in uh, 2019 for Best um, Middle Grade Young Adult Mystery, in The Last Crystal, um, Four kids are put on the train, the Santa Fe Chief, which follows along the Santa Fe Trail, mm -hmm. um, to go to California to stay with their boring old uncle um, because their father's been injured in the war. And while they're on the train, um, they need a Nazi spy. One of them is kidnapped. And in trying to rescue her, uh, the four of them find themselves in this vast prehistoric wilderness area without anything to help them and in order to get home they know they have to find the last crystal so all they had saying without anything all they have is an old map 
which happens to be the one in in the red abalone shell. And the only one of them that can read the map is the youngest. So they have to learn how to work together um, in order to overcome incredible difficulties. And uh, that concludes uh, the trilogy. But that, in essence, is the story um, that um, draws the, the three books together. Place is, seems to be is, is so important in in, in story structure, and, and oftentimes mm-hmm. it's as important as the as the as the main protagonists in the story. You, you've you've chosen the Santa Fe, Fe Trail. Is it because of the historical significance, or is there is there, what's the draw to the to the Santa Fe Trail? Oh, you know it, that would sound really good, wouldn't it? <laughs> the historical significance. <laughs> well, I kind of backed into it. Um, I started with an idea years ago when I was still teaching elementary school. Um, we made a cross-country trip from Baltimore, where I live, um, to Sacramento, mm-hmm. and um, you know, we still spoke to each other at the end of the trip, which, which in itself is a miracle. But I had I had actually made that cross-country trip from uh, Oklahoma to the Pacific Northwest, you know, as a young girl, uh, several times taking different routes. And, and I love that part of the country. But I, I got this idea from an uncle who said that he and his little brother were always put on the train in Kansas City every summer and shipped off to stay with grandparents in Sacramento by themselves. <laughs> and I kept thinking, gosh, what, what could two little guys get up to on a train? Well, I ended up, um, in the interest of equity, <laughs> having two boys and two girls, uh, but they're also because the, the characters seem to, you know, emerge as characters have a way of doing. So I wrote, I wrote the third book, but then I wasn't satisfied because I kept asking myself, how come? And uh, how come this? What what happened that made that happen? And um, so I created the backstory and ended up with a trilogy. And it made sense to locate it on the Santa Fe Trail um, for several reasons. One, I, I am trained in historical methodology. I love history. Um, that's a fascinating period that starts the book mm-hmm. on the trail. And I grew up in western Oklahoma. So the, the sense of place and, and the rhythms of language and people are very, very part of the warmth and woof of who I am. Mm-hmm. Um and this, by the way, is the um, 200th anniversary of the Santa Fe Trail. So I wanted to, you know, I wanted to tell the story in as authentic a way as I could using current scholarship about the trails for book one. And it, it is really interesting, and, and it has us rethinking what happened to people um, on the trail and and rethinking our complicity in some of the issues we still struggle with today. And that becomes more apparent in the second book because I set it at the cusp of entry to World War I. And that was a very troubling period if you were second-generation German family mm-hmm. or Italian-American family. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, one of the uh, family stories that I draw on you know, that kind of inspired me was my mother telling about picking up peach pits, you know, to for gas masks and and my grandfather going to uh, appear before the judge with a neighbor who was the German, um, first generation German immigrant who's gate posted and painted yellow. 
you know, and testifying that he he was a a good man Mm -hmm. and a good American. But uh, interestingly to me, the the all of the prototype for what we did to Japanese Americans in World War II Mm -hmm. was established in World War One. So it wasn't a new thing when we um, put Japanese Americans in internment camps. You know, we already had it worked out and we tried it. And I place it in World War II because it's an interesting era. And I I thought, you know, the Santa Fe Chief is a fascinating train. It has its own history. Mm-hmm. And um, the kids, you know, I think I thought about, well, who would you meet on a train if, if you were a kid going uh, west, you know? And who would who would supervise you? Because I can't imagine it. <laughs> because, you know, my uncle's father worked for the for the railroad. So I can't even imagine that, that there wasn't somebody looking after those guys. So that gets me into looking at the porter and the role that Pullman porters played, both in um, polishing high culture, because they, I mean, they spoke the King's English better than their passengers. Mm-hmm. They knew protocol down to a T and, and they were, um, you know, it was a job that was a steady job and they put up with a lot but they also were able to provide for their families. And, um, you know, I so I have the kids puzzling over why people call the porter that they, who's looking after them, they've made a connection with, why they keep calling him George. And, and porters were often called George, like, hey, George, um, because it went back to the fact that slaves were often called by their master's name, and George Pullman developed the Pullman car. So those little bits of history are woven into the stories, and that's why I say, you know, I like to think that the story itself will keep the kids up at night, but they'll be learning things they didn't know they wanted to know. Yeah. I was going to ask about that, because um, obviously there's a historical um, story there to to tell, and then you also have the 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 fiction part of the story that, that mm-hmm. you're writing as well. How do you balance the the historical fact with the fiction when you're writing for children or for, or for middle school kids? Right, because you don't want them to think the whole mm-hmm. thing is um, is fiction. Um, and and I suppose it is a delicate balance. One of the things I learned, um, you know, mind you, I taught <laughs> I taught elementary school for a dozen years before I became a teacher educator. And then I worked, you know, with teachers mm-hmm. and classrooms and, and, you know, so I feel like I probably know kids as much as you can. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but, but because I'm, you know, coming at this from an academic uh, background and, and uh, training in in historical methodology, et cetera, and, you know, writing papers, et cetera. <laughs> I, um, I wanted to pilot the books. And, and I know that when you're trying to market, it, it, that doesn't really matter that much to an agent or even to a publisher, but it mattered to me. So I found some classrooms where the teachers were willing to read the manuscript for the Black Alabaster Box, book one. Mm-hmm. And, you know, before I began to send it off into the black hole <laughs> trying you know selling your trying to sell your work but um, I uh, I got incredible feedback from the kids and first of all I don't think there's anything I've written including you know 
anything in my academic work that gave me more joy and caused me more trepidation. I was so afraid they wouldn't like it. You know, I loved the story. My granddaughter, who was just at the right age, loved the story. I called her my junior editor. Uh, and one of the classrooms was the classroom that she was in. And so, you know, they're going to start reading the book, and I'm just on tender hooks. And she, <laughs> she comes home, and I, and she said, "Well, they started breaking my pencils and telling me they're going to tear up things in my desk if I don't tell them what happens next." <laughs> I thought, yes, <laughs> yes. But even better was when she came home later in the week and said, "Well, uh, Miss Smith says that if we aren't aren't quiet and don't settle down, she's not going to read from the black alabaster box." <laughs> and I thought that was, you know, that was penultimate. <laughs> but one of the things I learned, I mean, aside from, you know, the ego strokes <laughs> or feeling I was on the right track, was that the kids were not prepared for the fantasy to suddenly appear. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I love a story where you're going along and, and you think you're going this direction and suddenly everything changes. It's just like, no, ah, what's happening here? And it's so exciting. And they did not like that. <laughs> so um, one one of the teachers said, you know, I had to encourage them, except for just a few, I had to encourage them to go on with the book and see what happens, because they were so angry with you <laughs> when the fantasy, because they wanted they wanted to go west, and this way wasn't happening. So I, you know, I took their advice, and by the way, this was across the classrooms, and mm-hmm. and I rethought how I introduced. Um, the book, so that there were some precursors to that fantasy element. And and in, in struggling with how to do that, one of uh, my critical friends who'd read the manuscripts with me said, well, what about Old Shep, the dog that is in all three books? She, and at, at that time, Old Shep was just your friendly, you know, black and white sheep dog. <laughs> she said, why couldn't he be a time traveler? So then I reworked the whole chapter, and that was very satisfying to the children. And and the other one of the other big things I learned, um, you know, I've done a lot of uh, of work with parents and helping kids understand death to the extent as um, you know uh, that any of us can. And um, I had a, the Grace's parents die, and sorry, the big reveal. Hasn't <laughs> read the book, but but they die. A lot of parents died. A lot of kids were left or, uh, um, orphans on those trails. And my granddaughter said, uh, Grammy, you can't do that. You cannot do that. And I said, but it happened. You know, I, 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 I don't want to traumatize anyone. I'm very, very careful not to spill blood on kids as they're reading. Mm-hmm. I, I do have a bone about violence in, in children's stories. But there were many violent things that happened, and I tried to handle it delicately but honestly well that was another source of uproar so i actually worked on rewriting that chapter and giving it back before they finished the pilot and i have a chapter that was basically inspired by how c.s lewis handles um the last battle and when he has the kids you know they're essentially in a train wreck but they don't know it and i called it the beautiful hills where her parents um meet the grandparents and they're saying don't worry they're going to be fine and and that was so satisfying to the children um, a friend in the neighborhood who substitutes in my granddaughter's class happened to be in her classroom when 
that chapter was the next one coming up, and he didn't see the note that said, do not read from the black alabaster box because I don't want to miss it. This is my thing. And the teacher you know, had initialed it. He didn't see that. So they were after him, and he read it. And he said, I said, what is this? This bucolic chapter that's just all sweetness and light, and these kids are all sitting there pulling their ear and sucking their thumb. <laughs> <laughs> So, so you know, it was um, those were things that I learned that I I really had to attend to, uh, both to make it more interesting and exciting, and also to satisfy emotional needs mm-hmm. uh, that children have. And in the, in the trilogy, the element of fantasy um, is very very important, but it is introduced in a way um, that. The kids understand that it's fantasy as opposed to the history, and the children are never bailed out of their difficulty by a superhero, that they're ordinary kids who have to sometimes step up and do extraordinary things, as ordinary kids in real life can. And so, you know, I tried very carefully to think through what would help kids survive in the wilderness for book three what realistically mm-hmm. could they do at the, the age they are what could grace do in book one when she escapes her abductor how what prepared her and before it ever went to the kids and you know in the pilot um, classrooms I thought back through and thought well actually she's a spoiled kid who's always been indulged leaving from St. Louis to Kansas City and on the trail and she didn't even want to go so how's she going to, to do this? So I had to go back and, and, you know, introduce a character who helps her gain those skills and uh, in a way that was um, realistic and authentic. So anyway, that's a long answer to your short question. <laughs> yeah, I, find it, I find it interesting because I, I, I interview a number of, of, of children's book authors throughout the course of, of the year, and, mm-hmm. and, and one thing that seems to be a, a common thread that I hear from, from uh, a, a lot of them is that even though we're writing books for children and, and, or, or kids or young adults, don't underestimate them because they really do understand a lot. Do you find that true as well? Oh, Absolutely. And um, one of the mantras that I have in all three books that kids connect to is there are some things only a child can do. Mm-hmm. And, and that, you know, kids see possibilities because they have not um, uh, lost their capacity to imagine things uh, could be otherwise. And that, that imagination is so important. It, I'm afraid, takes a real beating in schools that are so test-driven right now in the curriculum, um, good teachers can circumvent that. They know how to make it palatable. Uh, but if you're a new teacher starting out and struggling, that's, that's tough. You know, how do you tick off the things on your list uh, and at the same time, um, you know, help nurture a life of imagination? How do you, uh, as one of my mentors, Philip Phoenix, um, at Teachers College at, at Columbia University used to say, uh, how do you carve out spaces for wholeness within the classroom? And and that's a real challenge. And I think it's um, an obligation of anyone who's writing for kids. 
And by the way, my oldest fan is 98, just had his <laughs> 98th birthday. <laughs> so, you know, I, I like to think a good book is um, probably a pretty good book for everybody. It may not be it may not be something you want to read, you know, to your kindergarten child. And, mm-hmm. and I have a lot of parents who say, Oh my, Oh, my little, um, Ellen or Ali or whoever can, you know, really likes to read and I'm going to give them. And I say, I'd, I'd hold off on the black alabaster box until mm, 10 at the most 12, mm-hmm. just because unless you're, it, unless it's a read aloud and you have a 10 year old part of a, a family unit, uh, because there are some things that are difficult, and it's good to have um, someone there to interpret if you're just that little bit younger. And and I've had parents say, well, I they just aren't reading it. And I said, well, put it down. It, they'll pick it up later if they want to. And, you know, not every book is for every kid. The Last Crystal Trilogy is, is, is out now. Francis, are you working on, on, on a new series? What's... What's of that? course, <laughs> <laughs> there's always a story, and I have all these stories that um, uh, are just clamoring to be written. But um, this story actually is one the kids told me I had to write, um, and um, I got all this fan mail after the pilot. Um, and of course, I know that teachers made them write thank yous, and <laughs> <laughs> but they did, and and some of them were so wonderfully frank, and they said we really loved this. So uh, I am working on that book, and it actually, for your listeners, is uh, starts out in southern Illinois. Oh, okay. And it takes a character from the Black Alabaster Box um, in 1850, starts in 1855, right uh, during that pre-Civil War era when southern Illinois was a crossroads for bounty hunters and slave catchers, as mm-hmm. they were often called, and runaways. Uh, you know, trying to find their way to to freedom, and because of the Missouri Compromise, they weren't safe in Southern Illinois anymore, even though it was a free state. Mm-hmm. So I, I I said it there because people had different motivations for going west, and this family, unbeknownst to the protagonist, whose name is Sid, um, this family is a stop on the Underground Railroad. Mm-hmm. And he discovers that, and he, um, you know, sort of has to recalibrate how he thinks about his family. And just as he's beginning to be excited about and feeling like he's involved in and helping in this effort, um, their site is compromised, and their barn is burned by bounty hunters. And so they really are not going to be able to serve that function anymore because they're known, and they'll be watched. So they make the decision to go west, and then off he goes on the Santa Fe Trail, and and he he hasn't gotten to California, but I do have the first book. I thought I was going to have one book, but <laughs> maybe I only write in trilogies. <laughs> I've got him as far as Santa Fe, and I have two books. So. <laughs> oh, my. Oh, <laughs> but that's the fun, you know. I, I really, honestly, people say, you know, who's your intended audience, and I say me. <laughs> <laughs> That's author and longtime educator Frances Schoonmaker. Her latest trilogy for young readers includes The Last Crystal, The Red Abalone Shell, and The Black Alabaster Box. Her stories are set along the Santa Fe Trail, which is celebrating its 200th anniversary this year. For this edition of In the Author's Voice, I'm Jeff Williams.